Welcome to the Lawyerist Podcast with Sam Glover and Aaron Street. Each week, Lawyerist brings you advice and interviews to help you build a more successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are Sam and Aaron. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 31 of The Lawyerist Podcast, a weekly podcast about lawyering and law practice. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or using your favorite podcast app, or you can listen to it at lawyerist.com slash podcast. If you enjoy our show, we would really appreciate it if you take 30 seconds and give us a rating in iTunes. So Lawyerist now has a small but growing library of lawyering survival guides. That's what we like to call them. We've got two so far. One is our updated guide to great law firm website design, and the other is our computer security guide, about which Andrew Cabasso of JurisPage says, check out this guide and secure your damn computers. I love that quote. Find out more and get it at lawyerist.com guides or click on guides at the top of the site. Use the code PODCAST to get a 50% discount on your order. Just enter the word PODCAST into the checkout form. Sponsoring today's podcast is Ruby Receptionists. If you aren't already a customer, you should really give it a try. Ruby will make you happy. Sign up for a free trial at callruby.com lawyerist, and Ruby will answer your phones for free for two weeks. So in last week's episode, episode 30, uh, we briefly discussed some statistical bullshit from the Bureau of Labor Statistics about the size of the legal profession in the United States. And this week, there's a, an interesting article about scientific bullshit in the criminal justice system. Um, there's an article in Wired called America's Justice System Sure Doesn't Know Much Science. Uh, <laughs> and the basis, the basis of it is the... James Holmes uh, murder case in Colorado where he was trying to raise an insanity defense and they decided to deny that defense. Um, But the article talks about how in the psychological community, there actually is not even such a thing as insanity anymore. And yet our criminal justice system has it as a defense, despite the fact that you can't scientifically prove or disprove something that the scientific community says doesn't exist. Um, and then they go on to cite a number of other ways in which science and particularly psychology are totally misrepresented in the criminal justice system. It's a fascinating article, which we'll link to. Um, but I thought it'd be interesting to chat about for a minute. Right. Because things like eyewitness testimony and lineups are basically complete BS. Nobody can actually pick anybody out of a lineup with any degree of certainty. Yep, and people remember things, witnesses remember things falsely, and um, and then added to that, there was the huge scandal that, for whatever reason, didn't actually get that much press back a couple of months ago when it was disclosed that the FBI had either by mistake or on purpose presented thousands and thousands of false analyses of hair and fingerprints um, in all most or all of their cases for years and years. Um, right. And it just seems like we we have no ability to incorporate science into the legal system, which is a problem. Well, it's because we try to write legal rules around science, and um, you know, it's like lawyers playing with computers. It's they, we we it's not what we do. It's not our field. We we try to adapt it, and it doesn't quite work. I mean, it's it's. I remember in in our evidence class in law school, our evidence professor talking about. You know, we we all want eyewitness testimony, but really circumstantial evidence is often 
better, right? Because it's a footstep in the dirt is a heck of a lot easier to analyze and prove up than somebody who thinks they saw, you know, a medium height, medium build black man leaving the scene. <laughs> right. So, yeah, and I, I wouldn't even say it's just a problem of lawyers, since especially in the criminal context, much of the regulations are by statute. And of course, legislators are probably even worse than lawyers at being objective in putting standards in place. So one of the things about this article that I found most fascinating in glancing through it was the suggestion that trials ought to be virtual. Um, and this is based on our latent biases, right? If you've ever, if you've ever taken one of these latent bias tests, most of us have some kind of latent bias, whether it's black, white, male, female, um, fit, overweight, whatever, um, meaning we are. it is more difficult for us to believe good things about people who conform to some sort of whatever negative biases in our head. And so the suggestion is that all of our trials should be virtual. Everybody should be represented by neutral avatars because, for example, men tend to be harder on overweight women in the witness box or women defendants than they are on attractive fit women or, um, you know, white jurors are obviously less fair to black witnesses and black defendants. And so why don't we just represent everybody by a neutral avatar um, and have remove all of that bias from the system? I'm sure, you know, people are going to say, well, we want to be able to use all kinds of stuff to persuade. But um, but that's kind of an interesting idea that I inherent inherently I'm favorable towards that. That seems awesome. Let's remove the inherent bias. Okay, a I think that's like the biggest ridiculous amount of baloney ever. Like to have virtual trials is just Come on, we'll do it in second it's, life. It's entirely implausible. <laughs> B, describe to me what a neutral avatar is. Or maybe you get to pick your own like the defense attorney is a dragon and the judge is a dwarf and Yeah, and there's there's the no way that is a penis. somebody having a sports team <laughs> logo or a college logo or a superhero is ever going to bias people into thinking they are truthful or not truthful or favorable or not favorable. Uh amorphous blobs. Are they all just kittens? Exactly. Everybody is just a kitten. Yeah, I mean, okay, so there's some details to work out, but it's an attractive idea, you got to admit. So the mass-murdering psychopath is just a sweet, furry little kitten? Exactly. You can pick your type of kitten, yeah. <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? Well, nothing. Today I'm talking to the founder of a nonprofit law firm, something lots of people talk about and few do, and it was really interesting to find out how it works. Good morning. I'm Chantelle Argyle. I am executive director of Open Legal Services. We are a nonprofit law firm uh, located in Salt Lake City, Utah. Uh, sort of a new business model, something that a lot of people in the country have not seen before, but our mission is essentially to serve those in the lower and middle class who maybe don't have other places that they can go for legal services, uh, particularly those who do not qualify for pro bono services, such as those below 125% of federal poverty, uh, going all the way up to roughly 400% of federal poverty. Um, this is, is sort of a new business model, as I mentioned, and I think that um, it's a great opportunity to be able to talk to you and, and explain to those out there who maybe don't understand what's going on in the movement for access to justice and how we are one potential solution to some of those problems. Awesome. I'm super excited to talk to you today because nonprofit law firms are something that I've thought about before and I've 
just never quite um, figured out how it all works. And so I want you to tell us all about it. So uh, maybe start just by telling us how you decided to start a nonprofit law firm and why you're not doing this as a for-profit law firm. Sure. So uh, my co-founder and I, Daniel Spencer, went to law school together. Uh, We were getting ready to graduate in 2013. Uh, The market, obviously, from the Great Recession had not totally come back and still hasn't to this day. And we both needed to find work. And our intent for both of us, as we had small children at home with our families, needed to work somewhere that was in public interest. Uh, Loan forgiveness was a huge thing for us, um, but also having a stable job and good salary. And, you know, government work tends to be a little more stable and you can go home at the end of the day. You're not working crazy big firm hours, Um, but those jobs just were not there. And so, so so mm -hmm. you're part of the nonprofit thing was uh, you can offer loan repayment assistance at your own firm then. Yeah, uh, being able to, you know, the purpose of the loan forgiveness legislation was to get people to work in public interest and to Mm. even form these kinds of entities. So uh, that is a question that we get a lot. Well, aren't you gaming the system? Um, Which, you know, besides being kind of, you know, offensive in some ways, sort of accusing us of defrauding the government uh, is is actually just a misunderstanding of the purpose of it. You're just following the directions. Yeah, I mean, just like a, a church or another or a hospital or a university takes advantage of existing IRS code to get particular benefits for their type of organization, we're just following the tradition, which is the government and the IRS wanted people to open these kinds of entities to serve the public. And that is an incentive. So we're just taking advantage of an incentive that was intended for this purpose. So how long has the firm been open, by the way? Uh, we will have our two-year anniversary this October. And how's business? It's insane. Uh, you know, I like to joke, you know, if you build it, they will come. Uh, that's not true in our case. If you build it, they will overwhelm you with demand. And that, <laughs> that has been the case. We cannot hire attorneys fast enough. We started with just the two of us. Um, there are now six attorneys. Wow. So, what? I mean, tell me, what does your client look like? What's your typical client profile, if there is one? Um, right now, most of our clients are toward the bottom of our scale. So these are people who work a full-time job. Um, many are married and have children, multiple children. In the state of Utah, our, our average household size is slightly bigger, I believe. Um, so working class, hardworking, and still can't quite make it to pay you know $200 an hour to a private attorney. So, I mean, the the poverty level, that number is so arbitrary and does not really reflect one's ability to pay their expenses. Uh, you know, for a single person at the bottom of our scale, uh, their household size of one, it's roughly $14,500 a year. Hmm. I mean, you can't live on that. No one can live on that. And yet the government has decided that that's above the poverty level. So uh, someone making $14,000 a year will not qualify for a pro bono service like legal aid. And that sort of a person is going to hit your bottom 60 bucks an hour threat, you know, uh, scale, right? Yes. And and we find that right now, most of our clients kind of tilt toward the bottom of our scale, somewhere between 125 and 175% of poverty. And a lot of that has to do with referral sources. We started out by speaking with the other nonprofits in town to get them to send clients who don't qualify. And mm-hmm. so you know, people have a, a mentality that, oh, I'm I'm a poor person or I don't make a lot of money, so I go to the other nonprofits in town. 
whereas the average working class person would absolutely qualify for our services, roughly 51% of the state of Utah qualifies for our services, but they think, I don't need a nonprofit, I have a job, I'm middle class. So what, um, so I'm curious, were the nonprofits just thrilled to have someone to refer people to, or were they hesitant? You know, it was, it's funny, there's a mix of both, you know, you have people on the ground floor and in the trenches, so to speak, taking these calls who, you know, really want to help people and don't want to send them to the state bar website and just let them troll through the long list of attorneys trying to find someone to help them. So they really desperately wanted someone to send people to. And so they were thrilled. And I bet because you're a nonprofit, that sort of, um, I don't know, whitewashes the firm so that they can actually refer to you. Because I know not lots of nonprofits profits are nervous about referring people directly to a private lawyer. Yeah, and a lot of them actually have rules prohibiting it. And so that's mm-hmm. where I said there was a mixture of feeling. The people at the top said, well, they're not a 501c3 yet because we were pending status for you know six months. And until we got that status, they would not officially refer. But the people in the trenches were saying, well, there's nowhere to send people. So we're just going to do it. Interesting. Um, now, do you normally bill by the hour or do you quote flat fees for things too? We do not offer any flat fees for our services, um, partly because it doesn't work for our model. We, you know, the billable hour, we live and die by the billable hour, which is very mm-hmm. interesting, not, not typical for a nonprofit. Um, but that's because we are market-based. We live off of our clients' fees. We're a charity that does not rely on charity. So we don't just bill to a stakeholder and, and take money out of a grant. We need to watch where every single dollar goes and where it comes from because it's coming from the client. How do you, how did you come up with those fees? Cause you're, I mean, those are, those are absolutely low fees, but you know, 60 bucks an hour is definitely not what many people might think of as affordable, depending on where they fall in the scale. Yeah. And, and it was a little bit of a fine tuning process. We originally opened and our, our bottom of our scale was $40 an hour, um, which was even lower than the state bar has a referral program for modest means that started at 50. Hmm. Um, so we actually started slightly lower than them. Um, and we were trying to orchestrate it based on our actual need, our overhead. And the problem with two people who've never run a corporation before is you don't really know what your overhead is going to be. You open your doors and you can guess, but every month or so it felt like there was a new expense that we hadn't thought of, you know. Yeah, well that and I bet, don't you don't you have to deal with collections? We do. Um, we we do our best to mitigate that. Um, I'd say 90, 95% of our fees are prepaid because, oh. um, and so it, it's an exception when a client is overbilled above their trust balance. We get uh, 10 hours up front for domestic cases, five hours up front for a misdemeanor case, because we recognize that for our clients, um, this money that they're giving us is a huge deal. And we're not going to put somebody in the poorhouse because they needed an attorney. That's that's against our mission. So we really try and make sure not only do we bill efficiently and responsibly and very carefully, we recognize that this money, this retainer that they give us, this is our grocery money for the whole month. You don't go out and buy the finest produce on your budget for the whole month. You need staples. So mm-hmm. our decisions as far as casework are very efficient and very carefully considered what strategy we employ um, because we recognize that if we run through that 10 hours, we might not get more and they may be left hanging in the middle of their case. Um, but most of the time, I actually do write refund checks for you know, $10, $20 at the end of the case because we try and get it done in those 10 hours. So I, I'm really interested in the mechanics and the nuts and bolts of how you actually implement a sliding scale because I feel like 
we throw that term out there all the time and people are always like, oh, you could always do a sliding scale, but you know, very few people actually do a sliding scale and implement it. And so I'm really curious as to like, I mean, how do you find out what people make? How do you make sure they're not lying? How do you, and then how do you, what does your actual sliding scale look like? Mm-hmm. It, it's funny because we tried to use methods that were quasi-scientific as far as deciding, you know, what should the ranges be? What should the gaps on the scale look like? And, you know, there were charts involved in Excel spreadsheets and trying to make it, <laughs> you know, not arbitrary. Um, so we looked at other scales, like the one that our state bar uses for their referral service. We looked at um, other, you know, federal providers to see how they used theirs. There's a mental health organization here in town that has a sliding scale. Um, so we did a little bit of research about how it was done and what did the scales look like, you know, from what percentage to what percentage. And we had to make some judgment calls like people at the top of our scale probably have more disposable income. So maybe we make those bands a little bit broader or narrower and, um, you know, we, we did our best, but ultimately it's trial and error. So and what you're using mm-hmm. is you're, you're trying to figure out what their income is, right? And then you're fitting it into ranges of in, on, your, on your scale. Yeah, and it's tricky because, you know, we, obviously we want to ask them what, they, what their income is. But when you're dealing with a lower middle class demographic, you have things, well, I get disability, but I also work a part time job. Oh, and I get, you know, you know, public welfare benefits or, you know, so you're getting all these different income sources. And then, well, do you receive child support? Do you receive alimony? Um, what is your household size? Who lives in your house? Well, my aunt hmm. and uncle live with me. Well, do you claim them on your taxes? No. OK, they're where, not part I mean, of it. Where did you go to, to learn how to actually synthesize all that information and figure it out? Oh, it was super complicated. Obviously, the other nonprofits in town, they they have to qualify people and their requirements are much more strict because they are receiving grant money. So they Mm -hmm. have to report those numbers. So we looked at the forms that they have their clients fill out, the documents they ask for, tax returns, bank records, pay stubs, that sort of thing. Um, And ultimately, you know, as far as whether we feel like people lie, uh, I th- I've only had one client that I've ever really caught lying about their income. And that's a situation that you don't want to encounter. But the idea here is if we find out, we have a contract provision in our rep agreement that says if we discover misrepresentation, we will apply the maximum hourly rate to your case. Gotcha. Um, I don't know whether that would hold up if we were ever challenged on it. We've never done it. Uh, but it at least puts them on alert. And I think that disincentivizes lying on the application itself. So I've got a written document from them that they signed about what their income is. And what I find really is people are so grateful for help. They'll come back and say, you know, I got a new job. I went up by 50 cents an hour. Let's recalculate my rate. They'll huh. volunteer the information. Those so, are awesome clients to have. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you know, this this model is intended to be sustainable. It's very important to us that we don't rely on grant money so that we can stay in business. And part of that is we're profitable at that bottom rate. So if a client lies to me about his or her income, I'm still profitable, even if they manage to get the bottom rate on our scale. I still make money off you're that covering case. Your, so they're live. You're covering your tail. Yeah, <laughs> right. And and with a small profit margin. So so even if they lie, what we've lost is opportunity. Yeah. You know, for profit, and that's not our number one goal here. And I'm you know, I'm, and I'm looking at your website, and uh, I'll I'll include this link in the show notes. But you've got a great graphic that shows exactly how your sliding scale works in action, and I think it's it's cool how you how you've drawn that out for people. And, and if anybody's curious, that looks like it's right out there and you could just implement something very similar. So that's pretty cool. 
Yeah, and we actually have had other nonprofits form and and go on our site and take our scale and and use it for their own localized rates. Oh, awesome. Um, which we encourage. It's the revolution and we want to spread it as much as possible. And if that means we give other people ideas, so much the better. If it puts us out of business, I call that mission accomplished. So I'm uh, I'm on the board of a couple of nonprofits and um, like most nonprofits, a substantial part of their resources are spent trying to get grants and um, applying for those sorts of things. And it feels like half of what you do is your mission and the other half of what you do is trying to get money for the other half of what you do. And uh, you guys, like you just said, you're, you're surviving on fees. You're not getting grants and things, which I bet that freaks a lot of people out and they don't really understand how you can be a nonprofit and actually still charge people fees. And I bet they want to know how you make money. Yes. Yes. It's a question that we often get. And, you know, the first thing I like to tell people when they say, well, how can you charge money and be a charity? And I say, well, you know, nobody's going up to the eight-year-old outside the Walmart and saying, how can you charge for these thin mints, you know, Girl Mm -hmm. Scout? (laughs) It's just not something that happens because people recognize that you are allowed to provide a service. And the Girl Scouts of America are a 509A2 exemption just like us. That's a nonprofit that earns more than one-third of its support from the service providing services or charging for products. And so that's a recognized, you know, part of the tax code. And it's done in every industry. I mean, a lot of nonprofits sell services. You've got, you know, restaurants attached to the side of a church that that earn money that goes towards their nonprofit. Um, Nobody bats an eye when they go into those other types of industries. But in legal services, it's just a little strange for people to hear, we charge for our services and we don't take grant money. But ultimately, the idea is to be sustainable so that my clients get access to justice and they keep access to justice. Nobody's wondering at the end of the day when they go home if they're going to have a job tomorrow. When they come to work for me, they know they're going to be here because they earn their own salary. Um, So that's very important. And as far as the ethical idea of charging for services, I think a lot of legal aid entities have actually started charging for clients that are at the top end of their scale. Mm -hmm. Um, Our legal aid in town actually does a flat fee divorce for those clients who are uh, maybe don't qualify for pro bono. And it's a low fee. And as long as it's below market rate, the IRS does not have a problem with it. So uh, a a couple of years ago, I interviewed two women in uh, Minnesota who are, were doing a uh, a sliding fee scale practice, and it was a for-profit, but they talked about it as uh, as being a pretty stressful business. Uh, both because you know they were they were billing low rates, which meant they sh- they certainly weren't living large as people expect lawyers to do, um, but also just because their clients tended to be people in crisis who were coming to you out of desperation, and um, it, so it sounded like they had an inordinate amount of stress compared to the average lawyer who already has a fair amount of stress. And so I'm wondering, like, how is, I mean, how is that for you guys? Are you, do you, do you sometimes feel just like you're getting overwhelmed or is it something that you've figured out how to manage and how have you done that? Yeah, I actually read that article, by the way. Um, yeah. and, <laughs> and, it, and it is true. It can be extremely stressful. Um, and I think that part of the access to justice problem is there are a lot of attorneys out there that are doing this, right? And they're not getting any attention for it because ultimately it's not the core of their business model. They just 
need to take a lower fee to help people or because they need the business, right? Mm -hmm. And that motivation without the business uh, planning that goes behind it, I think is why so many solos end up struggling or failing because, you know, everybody will take a case and say, oh, well, I'll do it for you for a hundred instead of my normal 175 an hour. And then they can't meet their overhead or the stress of the, the demand. Because I think that people in a lower demographic often have a lot of other issues going on at the same time. Mental health issues, substance abuse, um, domestic violence going on. And we deal with that all the time here with our clientele. And so now a lawyer has taken a case at a lower fee. They're barely meeting their overhead on this case. The client doesn't have a lot of money, so they're having to make really tough calls on how best to help them. There's a risk of a bar complaint because maybe they can't represent them as zealously as they'd like to because of limited funds. It's a huge amount of stress. Um, and, you know, on an institutional level, there are things that you can do to mitigate that stress, one of which is we have two attorneys assigned to every case. Hmm. Maybe they both don't do work on the case all the time because the client obviously can't afford double billing, you know, one attorney... Mm -hmm but maybe one at a time. Maybe when they come to a particularly stressful moment in that case and they can't handle it along with their other workload, they say to their second chair, can you take care of this hearing for me? I need a break from this. And they'll pass it off to their partner. And, and that helps a lot. We also have a, a medical clinic model here where we have a case plan, a diagnosis and a treatment plan that we create when the client comes in. And that case plan is signed off by the supervising attorney. So before they start working on the case, somebody has sat down and looked over it and decided, is this the best strategy for this client? You know, that attorney who's a junior attorney has gotten some advice from a more senior attorney on where to go from here and any potential red flags that may have popped up. We do a risk assessment to see if this client is somebody that may be unable to pay us or maybe um, might do something that's detrimental to their case or maybe as a bar complaint risk. Um, there's a lot of support that we put in place so that our attorneys have you know, someone to go to, someone else who's familiar with their case, a backup if they get burnt out or if they need a break from it, or if their caseload is just too much and they can't, you know, keep going on it. Um, there's also our state bar provides counseling for attorneys free of charge. And I encourage all of my attorneys, when you're dealing with cases with child abuse, with domestic violence, or it's just simply the grind, it can be mentally and physically exhausting to do this work. So get the help that you need from wherever you can get it. Well, and, and it sounds like a, what you started with is charge enough to keep the lights on. I mean, Aaron and I have been having this conversation for a long time, which is there's all of this idea about, well, lawyers just need to charge less. But the bottom line is if you want to keep the lights on and you want to keep your email coming, <laughs> you've act, there there is a lower limit to the amount of money that you can set your fees at. And yeah, I you know I've I just put together a, a lawyer hourly fee calculator because I don't think that most people sit down and do that, and most lawyers can't charge twenty five bucks an hour. It, it you just there it is completely unsustainable. Um, you cannot keep the lights on. You can't keep food on the table if you're going to charge that little. And so it sounds like a piece of it is just making sure your business model works. Yeah, and I, I know that lawyers are not typically known for extra special, amazing business sense, right? So uh, that's something that I'm advocating hugely, you know, that the law schools help with because um, I actually sit on the Futures Commission for the state of Utah for the state bar. And that's something we've been talking about extensively is what can we do to better prepare attorneys to be business owners? Because most of us end up doing that at some point. And if we can't do it well, 
it's not just a disservice to our clients, it's a disservice to us because we want to practice law. We want to help people. This is something we went to school to do. And if we're not able to do it because we don't have the business skills that we need, I, mean, I just think that that's a real shame. And we're losing a lot of good attorneys to other industries or non-practicing roles just because they don't know how to run a company. And that's that's unfortunate. Well, and the thing is, if you can if you can make your business work at 60 bucks an hour, and that allows you to serve, you know, the the lower income end of the access to justice gap. Well, hell, we can actually we can we can not just make a dent in that gap. We can eliminate it if we get enough people to think about it in terms of what do I need to charge instead of what can I get away with, right? Yeah, and I think we have an ethical duty to do that. You know, we're not just trying to change the way that we charge for our services. We're, we're changing the way that we think about how, what we should charge and what our duties are to this demographic that is, is it's not just underserved, it's unserved. Mm-hmm. Yeah, these people are not getting lawyers in any other way. Yeah, and, and you know, I went and I spoke out at an ABA event at Stanford, and uh, the gentleman from Washington who had been uh, leading this triple LT program, the licensed uh, paralegals in Washington, who mm-hmm. were, they just had their first graduating class in licensure, um, you know, he got up and he spoke and he said, you know, if not this, what? If not now, when? And because there's a lot of pushback to that program, um, the idea that, you know, paralegals are going to come in and take business away from lawyers. And I said, we get the same feedback. You know, we're these two young kids who are cutting into the business of these solos and small firms and, and even big firms. And my response to them is, no, you're not serving these people. Well, I remain unclear on how the uh, LLLTs are going to be able to charge substantially lower than lawyers if they have to have malpractice insurance and if they have to have rent and stuff. I mean, maybe they can charge a little bit less if they have lower school loans, but that seems like only an, a slightly additional sliver of the the access to justice gap to me. They can only charge so little, just like lawyers. Well, and I think that part of the issue is that the the typical model with the billable hour at a firm, you know, you've got your associate or your partner charging, you know, say 250 an hour. Well, 50 of that goes to pay the paralegal and, you know, 25 goes to pay the receptionist and the Mm -hmm. rest of it goes to rent and brick and mortar. And I think that that model is part of the problem because you can have a triple LT who doesn't have someone they have to pay. They can do it all themselves. And so they don't need to charge the higher fee because they keep more of it. More yeah, of it goes straight to their pocket. That makes sense. Um, so, at, when you get a client who's at the higher end of the uh, of the scale, do you uh, are, do you give a little bit of a cheer and you're like, "Woohoo, we're going to make more money on this one," or do you really um, institutionalize not caring? Yeah, and that's something we took into consideration pretty heavily because we didn't want to create a perverse incentive to maybe even subconsciously work harder on that client's case, Mm -hmm. right? So our attorneys don't have a monetary goal. It's just their billable hour requirement. Um, And they don't, you know, once that client's fee gets typed into the system, they don't really pay attention to it anymore because they're looking at their numbers as far as how many hours they've worked. Right. Which is interesting, like normally we think of the billable hour requirement as a bad thing, but in your case, you've almost flipped it on its head and you've made it a way of uh, equalizing effort across your client base, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, and it also makes it so that when we're figuring out our projected revenue for the year, we use our average hourly rate because what that means is if our 
you know, bigger dollar clients come through the door, great, it raises our average and that gives us a better projection, but we know that we can meet our overhead at that lower rate. And so it's a comfort to us. And when the higher dollar clients come in, you know, all that means is that their 10 hours, when it runs out, it's a bigger dent for them in, in their budget. And so to us, it, it doesn't make us want to do more work for them because we know that for them, it's a higher check that they have to write to us to replenish. Mm-hmm. So when, when you sat down and, and compared your overhead to the income that you wanted to make, um, I guess what I'm trying to get at is how much are people making at your firm? Like what's a typical starting salary for a lawyer at your firm or you know, what, what's the goal? So our goal is to be competitive with the other nonprofits in town. Um, you know, that ranges anywhere from high 40 to, you know, mid 60,000. And so that's our goal is we want to be competitive with them. And and we also are required to justify, you know, over $50,000 to the IRS. And so we need to show the research that we've done to make sure that we're paying people at or below market rate. Gotcha. And that's real tricky when there is no other thing like us in the whole state. <laughs> <laughs> you define the market. Right, we do. And so we have to come up with a reasonable, rational basis for how we set our salary. And our board is the one, obviously, that actually makes that decision. And so it becomes, well, here's what legal aid makes. Here's what the public defenders make. Here's what a small firm makes. Here's what solos are making. Um, here's the average for the whole state of Utah. Here's for our county. And and basically coming up with what our goal is. So our goal is mid-50 for our associates. Um, gotcha. Director salary, we don't even know where to go with that because the other directors in town are, are getting paid from grant money. And so it's a different model. Um, how do we decide, you know, what, what Dan and I should make as directors? It's it's really complicated. Hmm. Um, you know, our attorneys do not make enough because this is still a very young model and our board is very cautious. They don't want to pay us so much that we can't meet our overhead. And, and so who's on your board? Uh, we have a good mix of lawyer and non-lawyer board members. Um, we have... Um, Rob Pedersen, who's an executive at Sally May, which is great because he has contacts in the banking industry, um, which, you know, there's this uh, Community Reinvestment Act money that we're trying to become eligible for. And that requires sort of some reporting requirements and things. So we're in the process of trying to get that. Um, But he's a great resource for us because he he understands things like, you know, how a board should function and subcommittees on boards and things that we don't know about because we're just out of law school when we open this thing. Um, we've got a, um, you know, a criminal attorney. We've got a family law attorney who's at a, a fairly large firm. So she teaches us about how things work at a law firm and how to use a paralegal. We have no idea how to have someone work for us and be a paralegal. <laughs> right. um, we started out answering our own phones. So we're, it's just a completely different world than it was, you know, 18 months ago. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah, and then, and then obviously we have you know a nonprofit director of a local food pantry who understands how nonprofits are run and what auditing is and things that we just don't even think about. And so we have a really good mixture, and, and we're very blessed because I think that um, we started out with a board that was just excited about our mission and kind of let us do whatever we wanted to figure out who we were and what our identity was. And now we're getting into the real governance where they're coming to us and saying, well, you guys don't have DNO insurance. We should get that in place for the board. <laughs> you know, things that maybe we don't even understand about what it is for them to be on our board and what, what they need to get out of it and how they need to be protected. Right. So if somebody is listening and they're thinking, wow, that sounds really neat. I'm really interested. Um, where should they go to find out more and what should sorts of things do they need to be thinking about? 
So, I mean, the biggest thing for me is I would love to see the ABA create a section of the bar, you know, that is, um, I don't know, low bono services or even nonprofit law firms, you know, because they're starting to pop up all over the country. And um, we offer a consulting service, you know, an hourly fee to speak with people as they're forming their own nonprofits in their and, and not just nonprofits, but low bono firms in general. I think we have a lot of skills and knowledge as far as insourcing, bookkeeping, running a firm, running a practice that serves this demographic, because it's a whole different animal than what most firms are looking at. The idea that you, you know, bill a client, and they owe you a bunch of money, and then you're trying to collect that money after the fact, and you end up writing off or discounting your hours. Um, I mean, that's just not good business anymore. It doesn't work. And to people with a lower middle class background. I don't know that signing a contract saying that they promise to pay me really means as much as it might to someone at the top end of a scale. Mm-hmm. So you're just not, you just probably won't get paid. And and that's just not good business. You don't want to have to budget for bad debt every year. So there are things we can teach people. And um, the consulting that I do, I think has really been exciting for people because we've shown that this model can work and they can do it. And is there a website where people can learn more about, in general, about what it means to be, have a nonprofit law firm? Um, our website, you know, we've got our revolution page. I'm actually interested in forming maybe someday a separate nonprofit so that all the nonprofits can come together and um, contribute their own experiences. But right now what we have is a listserv that people can subscribe to. And if they go on our website and submit a web contact form submission, we can add them to that listserv. And that's directors of other organizations like ours all over the country, um, as well as those in those beginning stages who want to just submit questions for free and see if someone knows the answer. And sometimes it's, you know, how do you make money if you're nonprofit? Right. You know, they get the answer. Well, you you make as much money as you want. You just don't distribute it to owners. (laughs) That's really the only difference. Well, that's great. Um, and I'll include that link in the show notes too. Chantel, thank you so much for telling us about Open Legal Services. What a cool business model you have. And it's really neat to hear about how you're serving the really the, the bottom of the access to justice gap, um, as well as the rest of it for anybody who needs it. Um, just great work. Thank you so much. Hopefully next year we'll have multiple locations and I want us to be like H&R Block, you know, where, where every city has one and they can walk in and get help. That's awesome. This episode of the Lawyerist Podcast is brought to you by Ruby Receptionists. Ruby answered the phones for my law practice for a couple of years. And here's the thing. When I was answering the phone, I was often distracted. I might be in the middle of reading a brief that pissed me off from opposing counsel uh, or dealing with something stressful or that I really needed to focus on. And so the phone rings. It's an interruption kind of drives me crazy, and I'm never at my best. That's not the face I wanted to put forward to clients. So when I got Ruby, the whole thing changed for two reasons. First, because uh, the ladies at Ruby are fantastic on the phone. They're cheerful, they're friendly, they're helpful. And what happened is that people would regularly say, wow, I just had such a great experience with your receptionist. And second, because my instructions were that anybody who asked for me by name should be put straight through to me. The way that happens is it's a soft transfer, meaning the first person I hear from is a receptionist from Ruby who says, hi, this is so-and-so from Ruby Receptionists. 
I've got so-and-so on the phone and they're calling about this. Should I put them through? And so I have the opportunity to say, no, tell them to call this person, tell them I'll call them back later, please take a message, or sure, put them through and I'll talk to them. And just that little bit of buffer meant that by the time I got on the phone, I was prepared for the conversation and I could be in a much better mood. Hiring somebody to pick up my phones and answer my phones for me that is as friendly and professional and helpful as Ruby was one of the best things I did for my practice and for my sanity and productivity. So you should check out Ruby and you've got no reason not to because it's free for 14 days. And if you check them out by going to callruby.com slash lawyerist, they will also waive the setup fee should you decide to stick with them. And if you sign up for the trial, they will take good care of you. And I'm pretty sure you will want to hire them in the end. So go to callruby.com slash lawyerist and find out for yourself. To make sure you catch next week's episode of The Lawyerist Podcast, subscribe to The Lawyerist Podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. You can listen to it at lawyerist.com slash podcast. You can also subscribe to The Lawyerist Insider, our weekly newsletter. Just go to lawyerist.com and look down the sidebar or click on newsletter up at the top. We'll remind you where to find the podcast whenever we release a new episode. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.